0: Hello and welcome to The Spike Podcast. It's been an extraordinary week in British politics with three major Brexit votes in Parliament. On Tuesday, MPs voted down Theresa May's negotiated deal with the EU. On Wednesday, MPs voted to take no deal off the table. And on Thursday, MPs voted against the second EU referendum and in favour of extending the Article 50 deadline. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me this week for a Brexit special, our Deputy Editor of Spike, Tom Slater. Hello. Spiked columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. And we have a special guest on the podcast today too, trade unionist Paul Embry. Hi. Tom, can you walk us through this extraordinary week?
1: Yeah, it has been an extraordinary week and I really think this will go down in history as an incredibly significant week in terms of Brexit, but also in terms of British democracy itself. Because we started off this week on Tuesday, of course, with the second meaningful vote for Theresa May's Brexit deal. Um, The deal that we should remember was really a Brexit name only, but it was Defeated by 149 votes. Now, uh, for Theresa May, that was actually quite good going. The last (laughs) time it was voted on, it was defeated by 230, the biggest parliamentary defeat in British political history. The 149 on Tuesday was just the fourth biggest defeat in British parliamentary history. Now, in any normal time, this would be a relatively good thing for democracy. This is an incredibly unpopular central plank of her government. Um, This should be the situation in which she would have to have resigned, if not already, and yet um, it's not, unfortunately. First, not only because May is still there, but also because many of the people who voted against that deal did so because they didn't think it went far enough insofar as betraying Brexit. What followed were a series of votes. Um, So on Wednesday, Parliament voted to take no deal off the table, effectively taking our last bit of leverage away in negotiations with the European Union and our last, I would say, viable path to a kind of clean break Brexit at this point. There was a fascinating moment in which, because the government's amendment to take no deal off the table was amended in such a way that they didn't like, they actually whipped against their own amendment, leading to various cabinet ministers, four of them actually abstaining, defying the whip and not being sacked as a consequence of that. So collective responsibility is really broken down. And then what followed the next day was the votes on extending Article 50, um, which romped home despite, again, some bizarre situations in which you had, for instance, the um, Tory Brexit secretary closing the debate in favour of an Article 50 extension and then voting against the Article 50 <laughs> <laughs> extension, which tells you something about the bizarre situation we find ourselves in. But while I think a lot of the discussion in Westminster this week has really been on the parliamentary shenanigans, the, the precedents that have been broken, all of the kind of rules of Parliament, being thrown out the upshot of all of this is is that we're looking at a delay to Brexit from the 29th of of March to at least the end of June and potentially something as far as two years and in either situation I think it's fair to say the um, prospect of us getting a meaningful Brexit at this point is really very much in peril so beyond the ins and outs I think that's really the big picture
0: that we need to look at. Yeah Paul what was your reaction to this to this week in terms of the big picture?
2: Well, I think the whole thing on the one hand is, is pretty shambolic uh, and on the other hand uh, is yet another betrayal of the, the referendum that took place in 2016. And I think on these occasions, sometimes it's quite useful just to bring things right back to basics and to, to see exactly where we are. We shouldn't forget that. Something like five in six MPs voted in favour of holding a referendum in the first That's place. And then we had a referendum a massive democratic exercise in which uh, over 33 million people took part and the majority of people voted to, to leave the EU and they didn't vote and this is the key point they didn't vote to leave the EU only with a withdrawal agreement that the EU mm. was prepared to sign yeah, they right. voted to leave the European Union for stop and then we had you know MPs overwhelmingly voted to, to trigger article 50 a couple of years ago which put down in law that we would be leaving on March the 29th and since then What we've seen are chunks of the establishment, both in Parliament and outside, um, which have done absolutely everything in their power to subvert the result of that uh, of that referendum and to make sure that Brexit doesn't happen. Um, And the thing for me is when you consider what's happened this week by voting against no deal which technically hasn't taken no deal off the table but it's you know the mps have made it clear that they don't want no deal yeah. they've effectively when you think about it they've effectively given the eu a veto over whether or not we can leave the european union because all the eu would have to do um, is stick with the uh, bad deal that they've drafted with um, theresa may which has already been voted down twice um, I mean, in theory, they could even withdraw that. There's nothing stopping them from withdrawing that, um, that uh, agreement from their side uh, of things. Um, and they're under no pressure whatsoever to give us anything better in the future because they know that MPs simply are not prepared to leave without a deal. Um, so when you consider where we were in 2016 and where we are now. Um, no closer, effectively in real terms, to to leaving the European Union. Then I think it's uh, I think it's a huge a, a huge scandal and a, a betrayal of what people
0: voted for. Ella, what's your reaction?
3: Yeah, well, I echo a lot of the frustration that Paul has just talked about. One of the interesting things that happened over the last few days was the amendment on the, the Sarah Wollaston's amendment on the second referendum, which yeah. was defeated. Mm. Fascinatingly, before that, before MPs voted on it, the People's Vote campaign put out a statement uh, calling on MPs to not back the amendment for a mm. second referendum. So essentially bottling <laughs> it, you could argue. But the reason why I wanted to just pick that out is because I think actually rather than it being about them being scared of a second referendum what it actually shows is that MPs are pretty confident that they don't need to use a second referendum to scupper Brexit because yeah. I think uh you know that certainly it seems shambolic in Westminster at the moment but actually it's pretty well organized against Brexit I think they feel very confident that they don't feel any pressure to uh, enact a clean Brexit because now they've as they've seen it they've ruled out no deal um it's in it's just fascinating to listen to the change in vocabulary and tone of uh, news presenters and commentators yeah. over the last few months when mm. uh, the the phrase a cliff edge Brexit or cliff edge no deal is now just commonplace when before yeah. it would have been contested. Uh, you have people even like John Humphreys saying to MPs, well, isn't it now time to, you know, re- readdress the public to go back to the public um, because they don't surely they don't want this so there's this sort of it's this given Mm. that brexit is not wanted anymore even though that's not backed up by any decent polling (laughs) there's no even if you you watch a question time audience you go out and talk to people on the street it's certainly not the case that people have changed their minds on brexit so (laughs) without wanting to sound too depressed i think actually what the last few days in Parliament has shown us is that the political establishment is incredibly safe in their sentiment and their feeling that they just don't do not have to do this anymore. And so I think the onus is on now is Brexit voters and remain voters who respect democracy to start putting the pressure back on to demand that Brexit gets enacted, even if that means some direct action in the near future.
0: I wanna um talk specifically a bit about May's deal, because mm. although that lost for a second time in the Commons this week, um we are going to have another, a third vote on it again next week on Tuesday. MPs and and even the government are openly talking about a potential fourth vote yeah. on the deal. MV4. MV4, yeah. as it's been dubbed, <laughs> meaningful vote for. Um, it's, I mean, it's extraordinary, especially as May justifies her deal on the terms that it, you know, basically delivers yeah. the Brexit vote. But I don't think anyone is buying it. You know, there was a YouGov poll recently that said that only 12% of people believe May's deal delivers on the type of Brexit people voted for in 2016. 58% say it does not. 31% don't know. I mean, Tom, do you have any thoughts on, on May's deal? Has the likelihood of it passing increased? And should we be worried about that?
1: I think we should be worried about it now, because a lot of the speculation, particularly in the last 24 hours, has been whether or not the Tory Eurosceptics, the European Research Group and the Democratic Unionist parties who is propping up the Tory government are going to fold. And I don't think we should take um, that situation as particularly unlikely. Now, of mm. course, it's not a done deal. I mean, given how huge the defeat of May's deal was the first time around, 149 has you know, come to be seen as nothing at this point yeah. almost. But we should remember that, that is an in- It's a huge hill to climb over in relation to Um, May getting this through on a third go. But I don't think we should discount the idea that the Tory Brexiteers, who unfortunately have become the last line of (laughs) defence against May's deal, will fold. There's discussion um, in the last couple of days about whether or not um, Geoffrey Cox would change his... The Attorney General would change his legal advice to stress that under the Vienna Convention we might be able to exit the um, backstop if we were caught in that indefinitely. Despite the fact that the Vienna Convention was designed for, you know... changes of circumstances between two countries that had a treaty, which include things like war and revolution. It's yeah. you know,
0: It's got an incredibly high bar for terms <laughs> on which you can um, take the, this out. The revolution bit sounds attractive at this point, though. <laughs> Certainly. but um, Nevertheless, it's quite clear that
1: it's, it, there are signs that at least some Tory Eurosceptics are looking for a ladder to climb down. Mm. Um, and I think that's something that we should take very, very seriously. And also just lament the fact that, the vast majority of MPs um, backed Remain. We can't forget that at the time of the referendum, it was something like seventy-five twenty-five, and it's fallen to a, a very small group of people who are still bound up with wanting the Tory Party to succeed, wanting the Tory Party to remain in power, to defend it. So, whilst it's almost unthinkable at this point that, given the deficiencies with the deal, given that the objections that the Tory Eurosceptics have with it, given they have, given the fact that they have been slowly giving ground on this throughout this process, arguably there's no reason to believe that some of them at least might not buckle at the last minute.
2: Just touching on the the May deal, I mean, the May deal for me is, is pretty appalling, not least because it would deny us the opportunity to have any sort of independent trade policy, which, you know, to a large degree, Brexit uh, was about. And of course, the EU are desperate to avoid us having an independent trade policy because the last thing they want is britain having trade deals with other countries across the world and gaining any sort of competitive advantage because if that happens and eu member states see that happening then their entire project could crumble because other people other states might want to to go the same way um and uh, you know what what i find unfathomable is is how may's government has got hooked on this issue of the backstop i mean the backstop was clearly a tactic which the eu Mm. um wanted to use in order to have an excuse to deny us the opportunity to have that independent trade policy yeah. um, and to keep us in some kind of um, customs union indefinitely. And I, I think from the beginning we we should have called the EU's bluff on it. I mean, we're not going to erect a hard border. The Irish government, Varadkar, has said that he wouldn't erect a hard border. The EU have indicated that they wouldn't uh, erect a hard border. So. You know, it makes you wonder, is is it going to be the little leprechauns are going to be the only people who are going to erect a hard border, um, <laughs> uh, an Irish border, because no one else, no one else I don't think would uh, would have the guts to. And, you know, if anyone's going to erect a border, it wouldn't even need to be the UK. It would be either the Irish government or the EU, because they're the people who have got the issues over, uh, over putting tariffs on, uh, on goods. So I think from the very beginning, what the UK government should have done is prepared for no deal seriously from the very outset. They didn't do that. They should have assumed, they should have had a strategy that would have assumed that there was going to be no deal, but hoped at the same time um, for a deal. You know, instead, the, the message um, from the from the UK government and the UK establishment for the last nearly three years has been that we're scared of No Deal, uh, and that we really, really want to avoid No Deal. And consequently, the EU, uh, there's been no incentive whatsoever on the EU to give us any sort of uh, any sort of good deal. And you know, I'm a trade union negotiator, and one thing you never, and everybody knows this, one thing you never ever do in a negotiation is give the other side the impression that you're never prepared to walk away from the table and that you'll accept something rather than nothing because mm. all you're doing is giving the opportunity to the other side to, to give you the worst possible deal. And I think there's a... I think there's an issue about trust in democracy here. You know, when you've got the prime minister who has said over 100 times at the dispatch box, the UK will be leaving the uh, European Union on the 29th of March 2019 and has said many, many times that, you know, no deal is better than a bad deal. And then when it comes to the crunch, she pulls back from that. Um, yeah, it's an argument to say, I think that she's misled Parliament by by saying over 100 times that we'll be leaving on the 29th of March and then changing her mind and, and saying that we shouldn't. Um, so, yeah, my, my assessment is we've we've played it, re- the government has played it really badly from the outset, sent entirely the wrong message in, and I think now we're, we're reaping what we sowed.
0: And now, of course, the, the way of avoiding no deal has become um, this extension. Um It's actually now up to the European Council to decide uh, how long this extension will be, whether we'll get an extension at all. I mean, it's very likely that they will give us an extension. And and they're meeting on on Thursday the 21st. May favours a kind of short technical extension just to pass her deal. But as we discussed earlier, some people want a longer one. Donald Tusk in particular has expressed his preference for a long extension. One consequence of that could be that we end up taking part in the EU Parliament elections. Um, I wonder if anyone has any thoughts on how those might go down. I mean, it'd be extraordinary, wouldn't it? Uh, Three years after we've left to still be taking part in these elections?
1: Well, exactly. And on on the point of trust that Paul raises, I think that would be for many Brexiteers, the final sign that this vote has not been taken seriously and probably won't be. you know—we Again, by the time the May EU elections roll around, as you say, Fraser, it will be almost three years since we voted to leave Mm. the European Union. The EU Parliament, core institution within that, and we're still taking part in those elections. And I think that will be a moment that really wakes people up. Now I would expect that given the current state of play that you could see uh, the pro-Brexit parties doing very well in that. Now mainly that at the moment we're talking about Nigel Farage's Brexit party, this kind of outfit that's broken away from UKIP, broadly speaking, as it's gone down that kind of anti-Islam rabbit hole that it has. Yeah. But nevertheless, I don't think we should rest on our laurels because that, that party is incredibly new, mm. doesn't necessarily have a lot of cut through at this point. You also have the fact that the people who would usually vote in European elections were the people who were most animated by that issue. Before Brexit, that was always Eurosceptics. Yeah. Despite the fact that the now, <laughs> exactly, now, because there, are this, there is this small but nevertheless significant group of people who have suddenly decided they love the EU even though they've never expressed that desire up until you know June 2016 suggests that you could see a bit more of a mixed picture. So if it does happen, I think it's really important that Brexiteers contest it, um, that we take it very seriously, that we use it as an opportunity to register our dissatisfaction with the state of play. But at the same time, I think we should recognise that um, what we are up against, because you know whether it's the Independent group, or whether it's the various people within the Labour Party who are trying to push their party in a more, you know, Remainy direction at this point, in the direction of a second referendum, there are kind of rival forces at play a little bit. So it's it's, it's no time to um, be complacent, certainly in that situation.
0: Yeah, Ella, what are your thoughts
3: in terms of the representation of Brexit voters in politics? I mean, it's it's just amazing that after having the biggest democratic mandate in British history, you then have. You know, I think you could probably count the number of genuine uh, pro-Brexit and its entirety MPs on your hands. Mm. Um, and the fact is that not only did the majority of MPs vote remain, but the vast majority of them are now trying to actively, in one way or another, over its delay or second referendum or uh, by means of May's deal, stop this vote. So, you, So you've got this incredible situation in which, Uh, and I've had it lots of times, you're sort of branded as an extremist and Brexit voters are branded as extremists for holding a view that was ratified by a mandate. uh, Yeah, as Tom says, almost three years ago now, it's just, it's unfathomable. I think the important thing to note is that, uh, as Tom says, you have to really know what you're up against. Um, And this is partly the exciting thing about Brexit for me as well, because I think it's brought to the four so many of the divisions in society that we sort of knew were there that were perhaps bubbling under the surface and now are just sort of brazen and barefaced. You have MPs standing up in Parliament making emotional statements on behalf of their constituents who they say do not want to have their livelihood sacrificed by Brexit. There's this kind of incredible talking down to the electorate in which uh unbelievably posh mp's are seeking to speak on behalf of their poor working class constituents who quite clearly didn't want to vote to uh, remove their jobs it's it's really disgusting but i think it's it's a it's a good thing it's a good problem to have because now we know what we're up against the fact is that the political class are asking working class voters to sacrifice their political beliefs on the basis that parliament has essentially screwed up because to put it, you know, it's it's very, very important to remember that since we voted in 2016, um, other than a general election, which, you know, many people agree was a ratification of the Brexit vote through voting in uh, parties on Brexit manifestos, manifestos that pledged to enact or honor the Brexit vote. Since then, we, we have absolutely been kept out of this. Mm. You know, it, we have been silent. And uh, that's, by the way, not me making a plea for a second referendum, but it's just pointing out that essentially 650 members of parliament, uh, backed up by lords, backed up by uh, members of the media class, backed up by big business throwing their weight around, have just time and again denied our vote. And that shows you that the divisions in society are stark. It is a case of us and them.
0: I want to keep on this thing of the divisions. I mean, can these parties last? I mean, how can a party contain both Jacob Rees-Mogg and Dominic Grieve these days when such divisions have come to the fore? You know, you've started, even in the, in the Labour Party, you've seen, I mean, it's not about Brexit so much, but it, Brexit has certainly driven it, this split between the Corbynites yeah. and the so called social Democrats acting as a kind of party within a yeah. party we 've had the independent groups, split off can these you know moribund parties last and hold together any longer
1: i mean i 'd be very interested to hear paul 's thoughts in a second on the on the labor side of this um, because i think that 's really fascinating but I th- the thing that 's um, really important to point out is the fact that the issue that divides British politics and voters at the moment is the issue of Brexit. Mm. We pointed out many times in this podcast, John Curtis has been um, talking about the research into this. And yet the two main parties, the two parties which are supposed to really represent the polarisation of British society in some respects, you know, to represent the two camps are trying to bridge that divide and are falling between two stools as they're trying to do it. They're trying to soften out the edges because they both contain either in their parliamentary parties or in their electorates, um, they contain voters from both of those two camps. But I think what we've really been seeing recently is that um, whilst it's quite clear that voters do not want to compromise because Brexit voters still very passionately want it to happen, and there's still a faction of Remain voters who very passionately don't want (laughs) it to happen, the impulse of the parties, because they want to hold themselves together, is to try and compromise. But on a binary decision like Brexit, do you want to be in the European Union or not? There is no compromising Mm. on that. And I think it's interesting as well, given so much of the focus that has been on the Conservatives at the moment, is that you do have... Um, the Brexit issue is also threatening the Labour Party. I think particularly this week, given that Jeremy Corbyn, despite um, announcing that the Labour policy, of course, was to pursue a second referendum when the conditions were right, effectively, you know, refusing to basically come forward with that this week, you again saw this kind of wave of... Um, protests from the membership people tearing up their membership cards etc something i find particularly sickening given the fact that it seems like a lot of people only are members of the labour party on the condition that it thwarts a vote supported by millions of workers across this country but nevertheless i think what we're seeing is that the existing political system as we have it is trying to kind of contain and squash this new divide Mm. um rather than actually represent it and i think that's part of the problem and part of the um, gridlock that we're seeing really is that fact
0: yeah, Paul, what are your take what's your take on these divisions particularly within labor?
2: I mean, just just before I come back to labor, I mean, I remember debating at the time of the the referendum colleagues in the trade union movement and across the left who said to me uh this will result if 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 there's a leave vote or a remain vote, all that's going to happen is going to to result in uh, an emboldened, strengthened Tory party. (laughs) (laughs) How wrong could you be? I mean, one of the the glorious things about uh, about Brexit is it has resulted in the utter implosion of the Conservative Party and and I keep saying to my colleagues on the left, you know, what's not to like? They can't quite bring themselves to say, yes, it was the right decision, vote in Leave. But, um, but clearly <laughs> for that alone, in my view, it was. But I mean, in terms of um, in terms of Labour's position, I mean, in some respects, I despair because I, I think it's almost like elements within the party, particularly the parliamentary party, uh, have just got a suicide wish. And you just need to, to remember. Um, I mean, some of the stats around it, you know, 61% of of Labour seats uh, that were won in the 2017 election voted Leave in the 2016 referendum. Um, something like 72% of Labour constituencies with majorities under 2,000 voted leave. Of the 45 target seats in England and Wales that Labour need to to win and to form a government, 35 voted for Brexit. And at the same time, if you look at um, Labour's uh, 20 most vulnerable seats, something like 16 of them are constituencies that voted leave. Um, So, you know, if... Unless the Labour Party does something to show people in these constituencies, in these post-industrial heartlands across the North and the Midlands, where there have been hemorrhaging votes over recent years, that actually they they do understand them and they recognise why they voted for Brexit and they're going to honour that vote, then that that hemorrhaging of votes is just going to continue.
3: Well, I mean, it's interesting to remember that the people that were most likely to vote brexit were those that were either in social housing had no formal education or are earning less than 1200 pounds a month so it's certainly a certain you know we're talking about a certain section of society mm. and uh, the part of the scandal for me has been the way in which um, both the conservatives and labor but probably most shockingly from labor is that mps have been talking uh, essentially threatening voters by saying oh look Airbus has said that it might move on if you enact your vote. Oh, look, Nissan is saying the same. Mm. Uh, essentially weaponizing big business against voters' wishes uh, in a way in which you'd think, uh, I mean, we'll disagree on the Labour Party, Paul, because I just think how could you ever credibly argue um, that this is a party with either a socialist tendency or uh, even the, the phrase for the many, not the few, when you have... Uh, MPs from the Labour Party and the Conservatives essentially saying to voters you have two choices you have your livelihoods or you have your democratic representation pick Mm. right and and that no no one should ever have to do that it's also important to remember that actually we were already asked that question in 2016 the referendum there was you know ginormous scaremongering around the economy and you know we don't have to relive everything that they said but voters Uh, in the face of the threat of an economic downturn, made a decision to take that risk. And there's every evidence that we would do the same now if we were forced to have a second referendum, which I really hope we don't. But so there's this, just to remember, this sort of um, very uh, reactionary and uh, elitist use and abuse of big business on behalf of MPs Mm. to threaten working class Mm. voters by essentially saying, you know, either you are poor and lose your jobs and, you know, we won't do anything for you and you take Brexit or you swallow this, you forget your vote and you go back to doing what we told you to do.
0: And Tom, just to wrap up, I mean, it's you wrote this week that um, democracy itself was on the line. Yeah.
1: Well, the fundamental point is that democracy is on the line because Brexit is on the line. And I don't think in all the very complicated and technical debates that ensue and should ensue in relation to Brexit that we shouldn't get away from that. But I also think more fundamentally what we've seen this week is um, British parliamentary democracy, British representative democracy, completely kind of debase itself Mm. and debase itself because MPs seem to have forgotten where their power comes from. Now, it was the um, fifth anniversary of the death of Tony Benn this week. And he used to make this point brilliantly, which is to say that MPs do not have power They borrow it from their constituents and they're Mm. supposed to return it to them undiminished and they're supposed to vote in line with what their constituents want. I think what we've seen in the the process of all of this is not only do we have a batch of MPs who are very much willing to do what they believe to be best, even if it completely defies the democratic interests and the expressed wishes of their own electorates, um, but they that actually our system gives plenty of room allowing for that. I think, if anything, I think this week in particular will be a really interesting point in which people will look back give, and that demonstrated the deficiencies of our democratic system and the deficiencies of the people who happen to occupy it at the moment. And whilst we should all look forward to the battles to come in relation to Brexit and trying to defend it and kind of revive it as much as we possibly can, I think the bigger picture here is the fact that it's not just Brexit that is being dealt a blow to, it's British democracy itself.
0: You've been listening to the Spike Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to give us a rating, a review, or even make a donation. We'll be back next week, but for more Spike content every day, visit spiked-online.com.